Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Okay, so we're in Hebrews. We've been going through Hebrews 1, 2, 3, and 4. Last week in Hebrews 4, we uh, found that in that chapter, there was this exhortation and there was also this encouragement. There was this exhortation in the form of something that was kind of jarring and, and uh, it was a wake-up call for us. And that's kind of what the, the writer of Hebrews is doing. He likes this. He, he likes... Um, kind of making things black and white. Look, you guys got to stop playing games. You got to stop drifting from the faith. You got to stop acting like this is not what God has called you to do. And then he automatically comes in right behind with this encouragement to kind of fill our hearts with a sense of joy that look, what's on the line is serious, but man, is it, it is, it's amazing. It is so good. Like, don't, don't play around with this. This is the things of God, but man, he is such a good God right? This is the writer of Hebrews. This is serious. Take it serious. But man, in taking it serious, there's so much joy in this. He's a good God. And so we're going to see some more of that in Hebrews chapter five. But last week, there was this exhortation to take seriously today and your response to God. And then there was this exhortation at the end that he is this great high priest. He's the greatest high priest that there's ever been. But the idea of a high priest, while it was familiar to this audience and to this church that the author of Hebrews is writing to, it may not necessarily be very familiar to us. So he's gonna dissect this concept of high priest over the next couple chapters. He's gonna unravel it, but I wanna give us just a little bit of reference point for us in case we're not familiar. So the idea of a high priest, it was a role so think of high priest as like a title or a role that was given to Moses' brother, Aaron, back all the way back into Exodus, back in the Sinai days. You can read about this in Exodus uh, chapter 28. So God says, okay, I'm, I'm gonna designate a group of people, a family from among all of Israel to be my priests. And among that group of priests, there's gonna be a high priest, and it's gonna be Aaron, and then that title when Aaron dies is gonna pass down to his sons. And this title is really important because what this title does is it is the representative, the high priest is the human representative for all of Israel, for all of God's people. This one guy is the stand-in before God for all of God's people. And so he, Exodus 28, what it does is it, it dissects um, and it explains in great detail what this guy does, what he wears, how he's supposed to live, and everything about this guy becomes a representation of the people as a whole. He comes into the Holy of Holies once a year to offer sacrifices for all of the people, but also not just the people for himself too, because he is a man who is prone to sin and prone to wander. And so while he's there offering sacrifice for the sins of his people, he's also offering sacrifice for himself. So he's gotta be a person from among the group 
because he's got to be able to sympathize with the group. He can't be just some, he can't be an angel or a king from some other tribe. He's got to be from among the people because when he stands before God on behalf of the people, he's got to say, no, I, I'm, I'm a representative of these people. In fact, everything that he wore reflected the fact that he was a representative of these people. He wore uh, this fancy hat that had an inscription on the front of it that says, holy unto the Lord. This guy was considered one among a group of people that were designated as holy unto the Lord among all the tribes. So if you think about the whole world, all the different populations and civilizations, among the entire population of the earth, there was one group that God called out and said, this group is for me. These are my people. These people are holy to the Lord. And there was one guy who was a representative of that group who stood before the Lord to offer sacrifices. And he was the high priest. So he wore a hat that said, holy to the Lord. It wasn't like a flat bill. It was like, it was like this big, massive, like uh, high priest hat. And he also wore these clothes. And in these clothes, he had on his shoulders these garments that were sewn in that had these stones on them. And on these stones were inscripted the names of the tribes of Israel. And he wore this chest piece that had the 12 stones. Each stone represented a tribe of Israel. He also had, it was called the, the, the chest a piece of judgment. And so when he was instructed that when he would come before the Lord, he would take the judgment of the people on himself. Uh, and there would be, there's two little things. There's Urim and Ithumim, these two little rocks. And they would use these things to kind of divine the intentions of the Lord. And so it was kind of like this idea of casting lots. What does the Lord want to do? Well, you take out these two rocks and it's like, okay, one side's yes, one side's no. That's how they're communicating with the Lord because this is before the Holy Spirit filled people and was leading people individually. This is the system that was in place. And this guy was the representative before all Israel. But he was a flawed individual because he was just like them. He was a man filled with sin. And this original guy was Aaron, and he had these responsibilities to come in once a year, and he would stand, so, uh, and I think I've explained before kind of the way that the temple or the tabernacle worked. There was this outer court where the sacrifices were made, but then you walked into this tent, and inside this tent there were three pieces of furniture. All of them were reflections of um, ways that you'd worship the Lord. There was a table of showbread where you'd kind of have a communion situation. There was a candlestick that would provide light into the room. There was an altar of incense that filled the room with smoke. It symbolized the prayers of the people going up towards heaven. And then there was this curtain that led into a second room inside this tent, and it was called the Holy of Holies. And in this room was only one piece of furniture. It was the Ark of the Covenant. And this was where heaven and earth met. This was the place where God said, this is my footstool. This is where these two realms just kind of come together. And it's at this place that I want my high priest once a year to come in and offer a sacrifice on the Ark of the Covenant, I want you to spread the, spread the blood of this sacrifice on the mercy seat, which is the point where these two angels' wings would meet at the top. And he said, this is where I'm gonna meet my people here on earth, and this is where I want the blood spread. But here's the thing, if you come into my presence and you haven't been cleansed of your own blood and you haven't confessed your own sin, then I'll kill you in my presence. That's how serious this was. In fact, we're told in Exodus 28 that little bells were sewn into the bottom of the uh, high priest's robe so that you could tell if he was still alive while he's in there. That's how serious this was. You hear, don't hear any bells, let's try and, so they would tie a little rope around his ankle. You don't hear any bells, it's time to drag him out because he walked in unworthy. That's how serious this was. 
This is the role that was a big deal to all of the Jewish people because this guy was their representative before God. With that in mind, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter five makes an unbelievably fascinating new appeal from the Old Testament. We've been talking about these appeals that he's been making in chapter one through four. He's making an appeal from the Old Testament that Jesus is superior to angels, he's superior to Moses, he's superior to, to Joshua. And today he's going to make an argument that Jesus is superior to Aaron and the entire Levitical priesthood. He's the greatest high priest that's ever been. And it's a pretty crazy appeal that he's gonna make. So let's get into it. Hebrews chapter five, let's start in verse one. We'll read a little bit, pause, then talk a little bit. Hebrews five, we're gonna start in verse one and go to verse four. So in 14, 15, and 16 of chapter four, we introduced, or the author introduced this idea of Jesus being the great high priest. He builds all that in five, and he starts in verse one. He says, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of man, men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's what we just talked about. And he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. That's a prayer that you should probably just go ahead and inscribe. Lord, make me deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of his people. And no one takes this honor for himself, the honor of receiving the title of high priest. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Now let's pause right there. The author is identifying what we just talked about, that the high priest has a couple unique qualities. I mentioned a bunch of them before, the things that he wore, the schedule he was on as far as offering sacrifices. But the author calls out two very unique aspects of the high priest role. The first aspect he calls out is that the high priest has to be a representative from among their people. As I said before, it can't be just some random guy. It can't be another created being like some angel. It can't be the king of Babylon. It can't even be a prophet. It can't be some random king of Israel. This is a guy who is selected, hand-picked by God for this specific role. It's how it's always been and how it always will be. God chooses the high priest. So that's the first one. And the reason why he chooses the high priest from among the group is because this guy knows what it's like to be among the group. He knows what the people constantly get pulled towards. He's from among them. It's one of the reasons why a pastor should be called from among their congregation because they know what it's like to be living among the people of that city and among that congregation. Having a leader from among the people gives that leader the unique ability to know what it's like to live among those people. And so that's the first qualifications for a high priest. It had, the guy had to have been chosen from among his own people. And the second qualification that he calls out here is he had to be handpicked by God. So those are the two. He has to be from among the group and he has to be picked by God himself. The guy can't stand up and volunteer for the position. 
So it may be a guy from among the group, but he can't say, you know what? No one's doing it, so I'll just do it. I'll be the high priest. I'll be a better high priest than this guy. It's somebody that is handpicked by God, which is interesting because later in the first century when Jesus shows up, guess who was picking the high priests at the time of Jesus? The Roman officials who had put all of the Jewish Pharisees and Sadducees into their position. All, all, all of the Jewish leaders, the, the scribes uh, and uh, all the rabbis and the Pharisees and the Sadducees at the time that made up the group of leadership in Israel, all of them had been uh, getting kickbacks from the Roman Empire and they were voting on who the new high priest would be. And the reason why you do that is to kind of make Rome happy. As long as the government has some influence in the organized religion, then the organized religion is, is getting supplemental income or finances from the government, and then the government knows that this group of people is not gonna give them trouble. Interesting, isn't it? As long as this larger organization has their hands in these entities that God created, then, then there's a harmony that they work in, and, and one's not challenging the other, and there's no uproar. That was what was happening in the first century. The author of Hebrews, is, he knows this, and so he's making it very clear. He knows that at the time of him writing this, there was a high priest in Israel that was not selected from God and not selected from among the people. He knew some Roman officials in Rome, and he bought his way into the position. So at the time of this writing, the church, the people, the, the Jewish people at the time, they know, they're, they're thinking, oh man, there's a, there's a, there's a high priest who, who hasn't met either one of these qualifications, but we still call him high priest. So the author of Hebrews is saying that historically, there's always been a guy from among the people and he's been selected by God, just like he selected Aaron. So these two qualifications are important. Now comes the appeal that we have a guy who came from among his own people and was, a, and was selected by God to be the greatest high priest that has ever been. In fact, such a great high priest that after he died and rose from the dead, he never ever had to be replaced. He's still currently the reigning champion, greatest high priest of all time, Jesus. Let's get into it, verse five. So now comes the appeal. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now let's pause right there. The first qualification, handpicked by God, well, I guess that was the second one. So the first one, he kind of does in reverse order. The author says he has to be from among the people and he has to be handpicked by God. Let's talk about Jesus who was handpicked by God and then we'll talk about how he was selected from among the people. So the second qualification, he has to be handpicked by God. Guess what? God handpicked Jesus for this role. Now he didn't just say this, just okay, well God picked Jesus, trust me. He appeals to the Old Testament in two different places. First in Psalm 2-7, where he says that God's selecting Jesus to be the high priest. He selected Jesus because Jesus was his son. That's the first way that, that, that made him, uh, that put him up for qualification for God to select him because he's God, he's God's son. So God selected him. But the second one 
is that God selected him from an order of priesthood that is not the same as the order of priesthood of Aaron and the Levites. And this is what's fascinating. Before, now you kind of, I'm gonna have to visualize, or like put up here before you just kind of imaginary this, this timeline, so just follow me. We've got the time of Sinai. Moses, Aaron, the tribes, the Levites, all right here. God selects from among this group a man, Aaron, to be the high priest. And this order of priesthood through the Levites carries on all the way up till Jesus. But what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that according to Psalm 110.4, which was written by David, there is a priestly order that predates Sinai and Moses and Aaron and all of the Levites. There's a guy back in the book of Genesis named Melchizedek way back here in the timeline who we are told and Abraham affirmed was a priest of the, of the Most High and also a king of this town named Salem. Now, here's what's interesting about this. This comes from Psalm 110, verse four. David writes this and he's speaking about Jesus coming from an order of priesthood that isn't the priesthood of the Levites, which is important because if you read through the genealogies of Matthew, you see that Jesus comes through the lineage of Judah. He's a king, but he's not a priest. So how can he function as a high priest if he's not from the priestly order? Ah, because he's not from the only priestly order there is. There's, an, there's another older priestly order, the order of Melchizedek, that God called Jesus from. So you've got this guy out in the middle of nowhere. He's this king of this town called Salem. This town will later be called Jerusalem. He's the king of the town, and he's also a priest of the Most High God. Who else do we know is a king and a priest? Jesus. How did he become that? Because when God designates a king, he calls the king, and he, or the, the, uh, the priest, he designates the priest, and he says, I'm going to make you a priest. Well, you don't have any ties to Aaron. It doesn't matter because I'm the guy who calls my own priests and I'm making you a priest in the same way that I made Melchizedek a priest before there was even this thing called priests. Do you follow? And some of you are like, well, that kind of seems like a loophole. <laughs> well, maybe for you, but not the guy who invented the entire system. He calls who he calls. He designates who he designates. So the first qualification, how did he become a high priest? Well, God designated him as a high priest and he didn't need the earthly manly qualifications of the guy being from the tribe of Aaron. We've got an older priesthood. There is precedent for someone to be a priest of God, to be a high priest of God and also a king and not be in the lineage of Aaron. So now we've got a guy who supersedes the entire lineage of Aaron and all of the Levites and the priesthood. It's a better priesthood. So first qualification, chosen by God. Second qualifications, let's pick it up verse seven, chosen from among the people. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, 
He learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So was he selected by God? Yes, check. Was he pulled out from among the people? Yes, check. And even though he was a son, when he was pulled out from among the people, and he had precedent as a son to pull his son card at any time he wanted and say, ah, get me out of this. I don't wanna be in the middle of this. Could you imagine Jesus walking into a restaurant and the, and, and, and the, the, the maitre d' is just like, oh, sorry, Jesus, the back table that we know you like so much, someone's got it. He's like, yeah, but I'm Jesus. I made tables, so. I heard a pastor say one time, imagine Jesus sitting around uh, the campfire and, and Peter's got the story and it's just like the best story ever. And Jesus is like, yeah, but also I'm God. <laughs> it doesn't matter what situation you're in or what you've accomplished or what you think about yourself. When you're in the room with Jesus, none of it matters. But he never used that to his advantage. He never skipped the line, he never fast passed him way his, his way through suffering. What he did was he learned, he submitted himself to an earthly mom and dad, and he learned obedience through suffering. Why did he do that? In order to become the greatest high priest that ever lived. Because you can't be a representative from among the people unless you have walked the suffering of those people. You can't be a representative of the people unless you were raised by a mom and dad from among the people. And look at the way he did it. He raised Jesus in a household with a mom and a stepdad. I'm speaking that and putting a little punctuation on that for some of you blended families. Now Jesus was adopted into that family and he was just as much Joseph's son as everybody else, but, but human speaking, the Holy Spirit impregnated Mary and she gave birth to Jesus without Joseph's help, even though Joseph adopted him and raised him. So some of you guys out here, you're thinking, all right, well the kind of woman I'm looking for is a, is a single woman. Look, what are the greatest families that ever lived? A guy married a woman who already had kids. Hear me. Some of the best prospects out there are single moms. Guys, do not write off single moms. Hear me. One of the greatest things in the entire world, the way that our salvation came to us, was by a man saying, all right, I'll take that boy as my own. When we look at Jesus, and all he did, and all he submitted to, and all he represents, it opens some of the most amazing theological windows for us to just gaze through. When we start thinking about the reality that, that this guy, he suffered like us, he learned obedience like us, he passed every human test 
And even to the point where he was going to the cross, he prayed the same kind of prayers we would have prayed, Lord, spare me from death. Those are the kind of prayers we pray. But then he said, take this cup from me, but if it's your will, I'll drink it. He understood what it was like to be human and to want to take the shortcut and get out, but he never took the shortcut. He knows what it's like to be tempted, but he never gave in to sin. And that's why he's such a perfect high priest. And when you start considering what he did and the implications of that, it kind of blows your mind. The idea that what we have in Jesus is this great high priest who gave everything for the sake of someone else. What does that demand of you on a daily basis? If you're serving a guy who said, not my will, but yours be done. If you're literally following that guy, then what kind of prayers do you need to start praying? And what ways do you need to start living if this is the guy you're following? If this is what he does, then why is this what we are not doing? If we're looking at this guy and the example that he sets for us is that he is the greatest high priest and then we start going through some things that we've previously learned, like let's go back to Revelation, our, our Revelation series that we just finished last year. Revelation 5.10, John says, when he's referring to believers, he says, you are a kingdom of priests. Now where does he get that quote from? He pulls that quote all the way back from Exodus 19.6. When God is speaking to all of Israel, you to me are a kingdom of priests. Well, well now we've got another category of priests. I want you to think about this for a minute because I, I don't hear this talked about enough, but this is, this is pretty, pretty fascinating stuff. When God spoke to Israel, Israel as a whole, the whole nation, he said to them, you to me will be a kingdom of priests. Wait, 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 not just Levi? Nope, all of you to me are priests. Now from that group of priests unto me, there will be a group, a tribe, who will steward the responsibilities of priests, the Levites, but their responsibility really is to model to you, the whole, what it looks like to be a priest. So that when you go out into the world, you are a blessing to the nations because you are my priests, my representatives to the nations. That's how it was supposed to function. You as a whole, Israel, all of you are my people. You are my priests out into the world and I'm gonna send you out in the world to be a blessing to the world, to call the nations to salvation, to come and learn my ways and to remind you what it looks like to be a priest. I'm gonna have a small group of people among the whole who will always be priests. They're not even gonna get any land. They're gonna live like priests so you never forget what it looks like to be like priests so you can be priests among the nations. You following? And then John borrows that in Revelation. He says, hey church, guess what? Same deal. You've been adopted into this Israel family now, but now it's way bigger than just Israel. Now it's God's people. And the way I want you to think about yourself is the same way God has always thought about his people. All of you are a kingdom of priests. Why are you thinking that way? 
because you are still supposed to be ambassadors for his kingdom into this kingdom, inviting them to come to the mountain of the Lord and to learn his ways. That's why we are here today, because we are supposed to function and think like priests. And it goes all the way down to the smallest view. In your home, dads, you are a functioning priest in your home. And your job is to show your family what it looks like to be priests out into the world when they go to school, when they go to work. The reason why we have church leadership is because in some way, the selection of the whole, there should be a small representative of leaders, elders, deacons, who are modeling what it looks like to be functioning priests among God's people so you never forget what it looks like to be a priest out there in the world. This is huge. And, and you could go on this and, and explore this for, for many, many days, and I would encourage you to. There's just one problem. The moment the writer of Hebrews starts exploring this, he hits pause because there's an issue with these people. And I told you, he loves this. Here's this big, massive thing that's true, but we got a problem. He's going to end it with encouragement, but we're not going to get there for a couple chapters. Right now, brace yourself, we're about to get punched in the nose. Pick up your Bibles and look at verse 11. About this, we have much to say. What is this? The idea that Jesus is the greatest high priest who's ever lived. He comes from the order of Melchizedek and it has massive implications for you as a believer following Jesus, seeing a great high priest and modeling for you what priesthood looks like among the nations. There's big stuff in this, we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. Oh man, I want to spend the next three hours on this, but I can't because you won't listen. <laughs> that wasn't me talking, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> the author of Hebrews, he's saying, and uh, guys, I could, spend, I could spend a year unwrapping this because it has so many implications. But I can't spend more than 10 verses on it because you won't listen. For though by this time, you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the very basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. If you're a King James fan, it says you need milk not meat. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. That word child means baby. <laughs> Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So the priesthood of Jesus is superior to everything. And the author could spend a lot of time expounding on the implications and the applications on this, but he has a problem. 
He wants to explore the deep oracles of this stuff, but he can't because he says that the people have become dull of hearing. The, the literal Greek translation of that phrase is they have become sluggish of the ears, which is important because when we get into six next week, we're gonna hear him talk about in verse 12 of being sluggish. And what it means is they're not naturally slow to understand. They don't have a learning disability. They're, they're not, they don't, their mind isn't at a place where they just, man, I just can't, I can't figure out that. You say it and I hear you, but uh, I can't get my heads around. What he's saying is that this is a group of people who are making a conscious decision to be slow to listen and slow to apply what they have heard. They come every week and they listen, but they don't ever do anything with it. And if they do, it takes them four months to get around to it. These are the people who they will literally stand before uh, uh, someone who's wise and someone will share with them wisdom. Look, Look, this isn't wise. You should do this because this is what the word of God says. And they walk away saying, ah, I think I gotta think about that some more. And you come back the next week. Have you made any decisions on that? No, I'm still thinking on it. Still praying on it. What is there to pray on? The word is clear. Just obey it. Just do what he says. Oh, I don't know about that. I'm, I'm still uh, kind of, we'll get there, won't we, brother? You know what I'm talking about? This is that group. And he's saying that this group has had enough teaching that they at this point should be teaching other people. They should be so well versed, not that they should become elders or teachers within the church that they're literally standing up, but they should be so well versed in the things of God that in their workplace, if somebody comes along and asks them, man, man you talk a lot about church and you mentioned this thing, of the, can, you, can you tell me a little bit more? Your response is not, oh, brother, you gotta come to church and listen to my pastor talk about that. No, 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 that's not my job. That's your job. You're the priest, Remember? So when, the, when your neighbor or, or when your coworker comes in and they start asking questions about the Lord, you have heard enough teachings that you should be able to start articulating some of the things of the word of God to them. See, this is where it starts getting, I told you you get punched in the nose because at this point you're just like, oh God, that's me. The moment somebody starts talking about the things of God, like I love him, I love the Lord, but I don't feel confident in talking about the things of the Lord. Look, I don't know any other way to tell you, but from the book of Hebrews chapter five, that's no way to live, folks. Living like you always have the opportunity to point a curious person to somebody else with more knowledge is no way to live as Jesus with your Savior. Like he's either transformed you and you're so close to him that you can't get out of this word and you can't stop learning. Look, I'm not saying that you have to be a master of everything, but I'm saying that if you're not a curious person, if what the Holy Spirit hasn't done on the inside of you is made you hungry for this word, then you need to start asking for that. Because you can't keep living the rest of your life pointing everybody else to somebody else. This is the problem that the author of Hebrews is running into. 
They're at this place where they should be grown spiritual adults, but they're not. They are adults wearing diapers, drinking from bottles. And the author says, I would love to spend some more time talking to you about the wonders of Melchizedek and Jesus and the priesthood that that predates Aaron and that lives forever. And what he did as a high priest, not just with the representative tabernacle here on earth, but the real tabernacle in heaven, offering the real sacrifice, not some lamb's blood, but his own blood on the mercy seat and the, but I can't, I can't go there. I can't talk about it because you're not listening. This picture of a grown man wearing a diaper, drinking a bottle is designed to shock us. Because it's cute when a little baby wearing a diaper with little little fat rolls and their big old chunky legs and they're just drinking. It's cute when kids drink bottles, but it's not cute for a 50 year old man to drink a bottle. It's embarrassing. And this is the imagery that the Bible is giving us to shock us into action. It's time to wake up and stop acting like somebody else is responsible for your own spiritual growth. Husbands, it is not your wife's job to make you interested in the things of God, to teach you about the word of God. We're sitting around waiting for somebody else to take the initiative to get us to a place where we can start growing and, and the author of Hebrews is like, why? What, where do, what shortage do you have? You have been surrounded by biblical teaching. You have no shortage of teaching. You have a shortage of action. You're not doing anything with what you've heard. The truth is that this book is a deep well of God revealing himself to us. And if we aren't careful to practice what we learn in this book, then we stop growing. And if we stop growing, then we lose the ability to teach others. And if we lose the ability to teach others, then we stop being able to distinguish good and evil for ourselves. And that's the condition that some of us are in. We're at a place where someone spoon feeds us. So we don't know how to make a meal for ourselves. Unless someone opens the Bible and speaks to us, we don't know how to read it for ourselves. We don't know what's in here. And since we don't do that, we're not equipped to be able to teach others about it and reproduce it in other people's lives. And since we can't be able to reproduce it in other people's lives, we're losing the ability to be able to articulate for ourselves the differences between good and evil, and we're falling for lies daily. Someone comes to us and says, this is truth. And we say, okay, if you say so. I believe it. You wouldn't be such a sucker for falling for lies if you worked backwards on that and you constantly 
worked on articulating and teaching to the people around you the things of God because you're rooted in the things of God. You're teaching them and learning them on a regular basis. You see how this kind of goes forward and backwards? If you don't take your relationship with Jesus seriously, it starts affecting your responsibility as a priest to go out and teach other people out in the world about it, to sharpen one another. And if you can't sharpen one another, you start falling for everything. And if you look at your life right now and you're saying, God, I'm falling for everything. It doesn't matter. If somebody who's wearing a suit shows up on a screen and tells me to think some way, I believe it. Why is that? It's because you're not going through the mental process of getting into this word and saying, okay, here's a truth that's not just true, but it's truly changed me in such a way that now I can reproduce it in others. Here's what I mean by that. There are some things that I've learned as a believer by listening to someone teach it. And there are some things that I've learned as a believer by keeping my nose in this book. And I'm telling you that the things that I learned on my own, nobody can take them from me because I learned them myself and the Holy Spirit applied specific situations. And, and when I think about this one specific truth, I didn't learn it sitting in some room or some, somebody else learned it for me and then taught it to me. I learned it through the school of hard knocks. I learned it myself. This thing, like you can talk to me all day long about faith, but the moment that I had to put faith in this thing that I'm reading about and I'm seeing in my life, you can't teach that. I learned that and it changed my life. If you are not getting to the place where you are spending more time in this then you can't start reproducing it outside of you. And if you're not reproducing that stuff outside of you and finding ways to articulate it with your own words, then you're a sucker for everything. You lose the ability to distinguish the difference between good and evil. So this picture of an adult wrapped in a diaper is designed to wake us up because we need to hear the word of God taught it's important. We need what's happening right now regularly. And you need it in a setting like this where you're sitting next to people who are like, yeah, oh, that's true. Or, oh, I need to think on that a little bit. Hey, you want to go to lunch and talk about that? You need people who are close to you that can challenge you and can say, hey, man, I love you. And, and what he was talking about, I kind of see that in your life. Or somebody could say, hey, um, is, is anything that he talked about, is any of that true in my life? Please come, come know me, speak to me. We need teaching in this setting, but we don't just need teaching in this setting. We need teaching in this setting. We also need you teaching yourselves when you go home. You've got to get into this word. You've got to stop pretending like knowing this is out of your reach. You have to read it for yourself, but you, you, you don't just have to read it for yourself. You also have to practice what you read. But, but you can't just practice what you read. You also have to start teaching other people. But you can't just teach other people. You have to start articulating the difference between good and evil. Because being able to know a thing and communicate a thing is one thing. 
but being able to take that truth and communicate it into something that looks more like wisdom to help you and other people around you distinguish the difference between good and evil, man, that's worth gold. That, guys, is what is in short supply in our society. There is no shortage of information in your pocket, but we are experiencing extreme deficit of wisdom with that knowledge. So who are the people among the earth with real wisdom? Guys, it's us. It's not me, it's us. We as a church, we can't afford to pretend like the only person in this room are with, with anything to say are people with titles or people who've been doing things for a long time. I don't care if you're 15 or 16 years old, you are going places and surrounded by people that I will never talk to and you have a responsibility to be God's ambassadors to those people. You can't wait until, oh, I can just get them to church, right? Get you to come. No, 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 no. You need to start taking, I'm not telling you don't bring them to church. I'm telling you that that's not, the, that's not the whole plan. That's not the strategy. The strategy is to take this and get it out there. Bring it to your workplaces. I don't care if they tell you you can't talk about it. Bring it to your workplaces. Bring it to the school system. Bring it to wherever you shop. When you're standing there at the grocery store checking out, find a way to magnify Jesus and talk about the Lord who has changed your life. Invite him to church, sure. But find ways to start teaching what you've learned to anybody that will listen because it sharpens your ability to tell the difference between good and evil. So what is Hebrews challenging us today? He's challenging us to put away our bottles, to stop waiting for someone to change us, to stop waiting for somebody else to do the things for us and to take responsibility to grow in the Lord and keep growing. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.